Hello and welcome to the Hustle and Bustle podcast. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, the Yugambeh people, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. My name's Nicole Bennett, and I'm an urban and regional planner and I'm the host of this podcast. Each episode I bring you conversations with city shapers and urban thinkers, leaders in the field of urban planning and city building. I'm located here on the beautiful Gold Coast in Australia. We're one of the host cities for the Brisbane 2032 Olympics and Paralympics. The next 10 years is being described as the golden decade for our city and our region. The conversations on this podcast help us understand the opportunities and challenges ahead. So let's take a minute from our busy hustle and bustle day and let's have a great conversation. And welcome to episode 21 for season two. I'm sorry it's been a bit of time between me recording these episodes, but today I'm thrilled to be joined by Rachel Gallagher. Rachel is a PhD candidate at the University of Queensland. Her research interests include how cities adapt their urban form to changing conditions such as rapid population growth or decline, natural disasters, de-industrialisation and climate change. She uses GIS to track changes to urban layouts over time, including city blocks, streets and property parcels, and how urban policy influences or fails to influence the desired settlement pattern of cities. Her research on urban infill in Brisbane won the 2021 Queensland PIA Award for Planning Excellence in the Planning Research category. Rachel has previously worked as a planner and policy advisor and as a solicitor specialising in planning and environmental law. Welcome to the podcast, Rachel. How are you today? Uh, Good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Not a worry. And thank you so much for agreeing to be my guest, especially that you're on maternity leave with your gorgeous three-month-old baby boy. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I hope hope you're not too sleep deprived and you got some sleep last night. But yeah, no, thank you for agreeing to be my guest. I particularly wanted to chat to you. I saw the recent article out around your latest research and I really wanted to find out about your research, what inspired it um, and and all that that it comprises. So um, could you tell me about your latest research? Where did it come from? Yes, this forms part of my PhD, obviously. um, And the overarching theme was to investigate whether zoning changes that seek to increase the density and diversity of land uses in a precinct are effective at actually transforming the built environment. Um, So I guess an overarching question of does zoning work to catalyse new development? And, you know, for context, I guess most planners will know that narrative that zoning evolved as a means of addressing some of the problems caused by the industrial city. It was a way of separating polluting industry from where people lived. But in the reality, the history of Australian zoning practices don't actually follow that. You know, Brisbane didn't have a planning instrument until 1965. Yeah. Um, Sydney and Melbourne were a bit earlier. But, you know, contemporary zoning, as we know, it really took off in that post-World War II period. You know, that's when the first suburbs were built. That's when zoning kind of mandated single-family homes, um, separate to commercial districts and industrial estates. Yeah. Um, obviously, this is when car ownership also rose. So people had to drive to get from A to B and where people worked and where they lived was geographically separated. So in terms of my research, you know, Australia's major cities experienced most of their urban growth, most of their population growth, most of their development during this post-World War II period. So the proportion of our cities that are kind of dominated by those homogenous uses like large residential suburbs, central business districts, industrial states, that those, those areas of the city are much larger than the kind of gridded neighbourhoods um, that developed before the car. So, 
you know, by the 1980s, most of our governments had picked up that there was a bit of an issue with this, you know, you know servicing these sprawling settlements, um, you know, traffic congestion, climate change, etc. And so by the 1980s, local governments were introducing mixed use zones, higher density zones, you know, in Brisbane, this focused on the riverfront, but and, you know, warehousing and old kind of wharves on the riverfront in Brisbane City, same as Sydney and Melbourne. Mm. Um, but by the 2000s, this kind of had extended to activity centres all over the city. So that's for context. You know, a lot has changed since the immediate post-War II period, but zoning remains kind of the key tool for guiding growth patterns. So mm. I wanted to look at how effective it's been. Basically, you know, can the tool that got us into this situation with our urban form be the same one that get us gets us out? Mm. So, you know, I studied 10,000 properties over six study areas in Brisbane, you know, 12, about 12 kilometres squared over a 70-year period. I got their land use and their zoning in 1951, 1950s, and mm. I got their, like, a zoning scheme, their zoning in 1987, which was when Brisbane kind of started introducing these mixed-use, high-density zones. And then I got their zoning and land use in 2021. And I wanted to see whether, you know, answering the questions like if I rezone this parcel from residential to commercial or industrial to mixed use, do the land does the land use change follow suit? And um, yeah, so that, that was the premise of the research, yeah. Yeah, wow. Look, it's really interesting. What really resonated with me through that is that, you know, is zoning the right tool to get a, get us out of this, you know, to solve some of the challenges that we're having in our cities because it's the sort of tool that got us into some of it. So that's really fascinating kind of question to ponder and not something I had really considered before you um, before you started this research. So I'm keen to know what did the research find? Do you have some findings? Yeah, so we found across those six study areas, and and they were some of them were there were three of them were middle uh, middle ring suburbs, and three of them were inner city, and we found that residential use and zoning stayed largely consistent. It was the most dominant land use across the study areas. It was about high thirty percent, low forty percent of study areas over time. Um, although you know those areas did experience densification, so with apartments replacing houses in some instances, uh, but the most interesting finding for me was the huge rise in land dedicated to commercial services. So that meant that almost all the jobs in these areas by 2021 were in commercial services. Mm. So in terms of zoning, industrial zoning accounted for 30% of land mass in the 1950s, and it was largely eliminated by 2021. You know, there were some patches of light industry, but most of the time former industrial zones have been replaced with higher density or mixed use zones. So as a result, zoning that allowed for commercial development increased from less than 1% of total land in the 1950s to about 34% in 2021. And the land use changed to follow suit. So commercial use grew from 2% of land area in the 1950s to about 30% in 2021. And this occurred at the expense of industry. So you know, the limited number of properties that were zoned for low impact industry, which in Brisbane City Council's planning scheme is to support activities and not industrial activities and not compromise the future use of premises for industrial activities. So there were some properties that were used for industry, like ceramic workshops, a fabric printer, car repair stores, but there were lots of car dealerships, gyms, um, even restaurants. So Mm. We all know, like from a planning perspective, even though the physical structure of a car dealership or a gym might not, like the physical building might not impede future industry, but we all know as soon as a non-industrial use goes into a property, rents go up, and it's really unlikely that 
industry, you know, a pallet manufacturer, for example, it's really, really unlikely that they'd be able to afford to go back into that land anymore. Mm. So interestingly, I did find, though, that for land that did have a manufacturing or industrial use in 2021, Mm. and we're talking like light industry mostly, like microbreweries, bicycle repair stores, like auto repair stores, like not panel beaters, but auto repair, most of this had been zoned as general industry in 1987, which was like a higher, with heavier industrial zoning. But it yeah. kind of insinuated that there was a protective factor of industrial zoning. So property that had had a heavier industrial zoning and then that was replaced by a lighter one, they were more likely to retain their industrial use. Mm. Um, whereas land that was zoned as mixed use, that pretty much just, you know, that open competition between industrial uses commercial and residential just meant that the industrial use was pushed out so only about three percent of mixed use zone land actually contained any kind of production activity making stuff about yeah three percent of land yeah so yeah so the findings suggest that you know industrial zoning protects industrial use whereas mixed use zoning enables conversion um, to residential and commercial use yeah because i guess industrial uses or industrial yeah activities aren't considered the highest and best use if you look at it purely from kind of a development perspective and so when you've got kind of a mixed use zone you're kind of putting a a lower order use in there competing with you know the higher order uses of kind of residential and commercial which could sell for greater you know square meter per rate you know exactly kind of so you know with that with that approach of you know highest and best use you know, our economy favours residential and commercial development above all else. Yeah. You know, I put in the research paper that I I argue that this creates kind of diseconomies for the city in the long term. You know, it creates and we've called it an urban landscape, you know, an area of the city dedicated to kind of big box retail, petrol stations, offices. They're homogenous. So it also makes them really vulnerable. And, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic exposed this kind of tenure situation that we've created for our local economies. So, you know, in these areas where there are homogenous uses, uh, you know, employees employees working from home, they result in low foot traffic, impacts for businesses relying on those commuting workers. You know, in comparison, manufacturing workers, like people that produce stuff, largely yeah. continued to go to work during lockdowns. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, I say in the research paper that, you know, compelling or enticing workers back to the office is only a really a short-term fix for a much larger structural problem in our city. Um, you know, in fact, other research from Monash University showed that the most resilient places for jobs during COVID-19 lockdowns, there's my baby, um, <laughs> were those that contained a diversified industrial employment mix and didn't rely on a single sector for employment. So yeah. Melbourne's last remaining inner city industrial zone, Port Melbourne, was the most resilient place of employment in Australia. You know, it, produ- it produces stuff, so it has a diverse mix of production as well as commercial services. So when the office workers stopped coming to work, um, the cafe could still sell coffees to the people that were coming in and manufacturing stuff. So it it was diverse. It was more resilient. Yeah, it's fascinating because, you know, in my brain I kind of think, well, you know, we are, um, you know, going through a de-industrialisation. You know, we are seeing kind of jobs move to something that's, I guess, more clean or, you know, more commercial in nature. So really is there an issue with, kind of having less industrial land in our city. But I think you've, you've answered that through that kind of the resilience of our city and how do we make sure that we are kind of, you know, having a broad spectrum of jobs and opportunities to create that economic resilience for our cities. 
Yeah, and I think that there's a bit of a, a misunderstanding almost about contemporary manufacturing. You know, we're not I'm not, I'm not talking about steelworks, even concrete batching plants. I'm not, you know, even though there is a concrete batching plant, in, you know, in the centre of Brisbane almost, yeah. um, which is, I guess, helpful for all the apartments that are getting built locally. Yeah. But um, I'm not even talking about that large-scale industry. Like most manufacturing in Australia are small businesses. Mm. You know, we're talking like print shops. We're talking, you know, people that make textiles, garment manufacturing. Mm. Um and if we don't create space for these in the city, you know, so one of my study areas is West End kind of so patches, patches of West End and South Brisbane, you know, across the, the river from Brisbane's city centre. Mm. And there is not uh, an auto repair store there. So, you know, if you want to take your car to be serviced, which you yeah. know, most people, even though they are two kilometres from the city, most people still drive, yeah. which is another issue altogether, um, you have to leave your suburb. You have to leave yeah. your community to do that because there's no space for it. And they mm. also can't afford to go in there. And it's also things like if you want to move to a more um, cultural commercial services, a kind of local production, you know, if the carpenter who makes the sets for your plays at QPAC can't, you know, the Queensland Performing Arts Centre, if mm. that carpenter can't afford to, you know, have a shop locally um, or even the people making costumes, or just it's just anyone that makes stuff, if they can't afford to live and work locally, then you don't you don't have that diversified employment mix and you do open yourself up to a shock like covid lockdowns yeah and i think um i've heard other people describe it as the maker industry you know and yeah. i think you've articulated that really well there it's like those creative industries that we don't Correct. think about um even like i my washing machine broke and i needed to kind of get exactly. it repaired and there was nowhere like it took me ages to find kind of a, a white goods place that repairs them and I mean I guess that kind of is an indictment on our society more generally in that we generally would just throw it out and get a new one but it's like yeah exactly. these maker or repairer kind of industries where are we planning for them in our communities because our population is growing and so therefore you would think that these types of industries would need to grow alongside of it. Yeah, and it applies to other, like, obviously I'm, I'm talking about jobs, like industry versus commercial services, but it also mm. applies to kind of large residential suburbs. Like how many people during lockdowns realised that there wasn't a doctor's surgery or a supermarket within five kilometres of their home? Yeah. So, you know, what putting COVID aside, what happens if petrol is $10 a litre? What if you can't drive? Yeah. You know, can you still access the infrastructure and services that you need if you can't get into your car? Mm. Um, you know, there's a wider question about having huge areas of land dedicated to single uses so yeah yeah there's, that's, it's a big topic it's really got my brain ticking <laughs> I'm keen to know Rachel what other topics or papers are you currently researching that are contributing to your PhD so th this forms on a much broader kind of topic about um how land use change and how 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 the city urban form alters in response to changing policy decisions. So I've also looked at urban morphology, um, which is the physical layout of the city, you know, it's streets, parcels, building footprints. And I want to know how that existing layout changes in, in response to policy decisions or changing economic or social, you know, situations. So, you know, my previous research in Brisbane on urban infill in the inner south kind of touched on that topic. But those areas were kind of older, gridded communities really close to the city centre. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to know particularly how do other areas that have been targeted for higher density, higher um, land use diversity, how do they respond to these policy changes, especially the newer kind of car-centric developments? 
how do they how do those structures respond to upzonings? Um, does it work? Um, and so that's kind of that's that's in the works that that piece of work. So looking at building footprints, property parcels, as well as street layouts. So. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. Something that I can't wait to hear about because I, I would have thought that that would kind of be really um, linked with kind of the economic cycle as well. Yeah, and it's it's interestingly I don't want to kind of reveal it before it's published, but <laughs> yeah. um, it's it's talking at do peripheral suburbs with kind of car centric, and we're not talking about the newer developments. We're talking kind of nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies developments. Sure. Um, do they? You know, when they've got massive highway infrastructure, um, shopping malls, like car-centric, obviously, shopping malls, do they respond to upzoning in the same way that our inner-city gridded communities do? Yeah. And, you know, urban consolidation policy kind of assumes that there's land available for redevelopment without yeah. actually looking at what's on the ground. And, mm. you know, urban morphologists would argue that you have to understand what's there first before you start trying to change it, mm. uh, which I think is a kind of something that we don't really do um, from an urban planning policy perspective. Or don't do well enough by the sounds of it. Yes. Okay, last question for you. Um, what can we learn from the research you're doing? You know, what can we do as, as planning practitioners, you know, to respond to the findings and, and think about the city in a different, through a different lens? Yeah, so like on a fundamental level, you know, land use diversity is linked to urban resilience. And previous research has showed that like compact cities with a mix of land uses are more resilient than you know single use sprawling car dependent urban forms. You know the lack of land use diversity in a precinct, neighbourhood, city, I argue, can create weaknesses in the physical structure of that city in the long term. So existing planning practices that allow that open competition between industry and other uses across that high value real estate. Uh, only really considers that beneficial impact for individual property owners rather than the long-term impact for the city's economy. So I asked the question, you know, if the role of public planning authorities is to regulate land use in the interests of the community with a long-term kind of future-focused view, mm. I think it's questionable whether facilitating the most lucrative use of a particular parcel is in the best interest of the city. Mm. So, you know, my research shows that it might mean using industrial zoning to protect manufacturing, but that's only one idea. You know, mm. I think that there is a broader conversation to be had uh, between policymakers, policy shapers, you know, developers. I think there's a broader conversation in the community about whether the existing tools that we have are actually fit for purpose, whether zoning actually serves its intended aims. You know, zoning does a great job at separating uses, even ones that I would argue are compatible. You know, mm. I'd argue that there's nothing incompatible about a corner store or a bicycle repair shop or even apartments in a low density residential area, but they're not allowed. You know, mm. but zoning does a terrible job of managing actual quantifiable, you know, nuisance impacts like traffic, noise, light, et cetera. You know. Yeah. Just recently, like a classic example is a discussion I recently had on LinkedIn about um, increasing residential density in Holland Park West, which people yeah. don't know. It's a, it's a suburb, six Ks from Brisbane City Centre. It's got great active and public transport infrastructure but it's all zoned as low density residential. Mm. And someone said to me, oh, the suburb wasn't ready because of traffic on the M3. So people that don't know, you know the M3 is Pacific Motorway. It runs from Brisbane to the Gold Coast. Mm -hmm. And a few townhouses in Holland Park West is going to have a negligible impact on traffic compared to the hundreds of thousands of new homes, you know, in car centric residential suburbs being built from Brisbane to the coast. Yeah. And zoning has no way of managing those impacts. So, 
I think there's a broader conversation that we need to have as planners about whether we need new planning tools to ensure that development is in the right place and it's supported by the right infrastructure. And, you know, even to me, it's asking the question, if people won't notice this new development, why can't it be built? You know, like people who are internally subdividing their houses. If you're not going to notice that that big house in a residential suburb is being internally subdivided into two units, if you're not going to notice, then why can't it happen? Yeah, I love it. Rachel, that is just fascinating. I can't wait to um, see more of these, this research that's coming out. What's your time frame for your PhD? Um, whenever I can get it done. Um, <laughs> I'm hoping within the next kind of 12 to 18 months, but it just um, depends about life, really. Um, yes, absolutely. And do you think the, the PhD will sort of help us think about some alternative tools to zoning? Will it go that far? I hope so. I think the more I researched and the more I kind of did my literature review and looked at what else was out there, I realised that there's some real, um, like zoning is just one example of things that we've just accepted as that's the way we regulate our cities. Yeah. When really there's no, there's very little research to show what is successful and what's not successful. Yeah. Um, I realised that there's a real deficit there, which hopefully my PhD will go some way in contributing to that body of work that other people are doing as well. Yeah. Um, to just to to kind of quantify these impacts and have a look at well, what tools are missing? What what do we need more of? What do we need less of? Yeah. Look, thank you so much. I'm going to let you get back to your little baby boy because I can hear he's woken up and. Um, and I really appreciate you making the time for me this morning um, throughout everything else that you're you're juggling. It's, it's so appreciated. And I hope that our listeners have been able to kind of um, get a little insight into the research that you're undertaking and where it's heading and can sort of follow along because you do post on LinkedIn. So I encourage I'll put your whatever the LinkedIn <laughs> address is in the show notes so that people can uh, follow you and, and learn more about what you're researching. But thank you for your time today, Rachel. Oh, thanks for having me. And thank you for tuning into the Hustle and Bustle podcast this week. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and a review so that others find out about the show. You can follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn too. That's all from this episode. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you next time. Bye for now.